this is our second study in the life of Moses. If you missed last week, you can pick that one up, either printed or uh, the audio is online, and you can grab a printed copy right now if you'd like. They're kind of in a mustard yellow color uh, booklet at the uh, entrances, and if you have a bulletin, you should have the outline in there. And we're going to be covering uh, Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. So if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up here on, on the screen. Exodus 2, verse 11. <clears throat> now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other, and he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and what's more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you've left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bo the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. A promising junior executive with IBM involved the company in a uh, risky venture that resulted in a $10 million loss to the company. When Tom Watson, who was IBM's founder, called the young man in to his office, uh, the young man blurted out, I guess you want my resignation. Watson replied, you can't be serious. We've just invested $10 million in your education. You know, God is in the business of using failures. 
The Bible, thankfully, doesn't paper over the uh, failings, the shortcomings, the warts, if you would call them that, of its heroes. Moses exposed himself, got drunk and exposed himself. Uh, Abraham twice lied about his wife being his sister. His son Isaac followed suit and did the same. Uh, Jacob, as you know, was a deceiver. He deceived his father out of the birthright, cheated his brother. Um, David sinned with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah murdered. The disciples all abandoned Jesus in his moment of need in the garden. Peter, as you know, denied Jesus three times. And then later, up in Antioch, he waffled on the gospel out of fear of the Judaizers, and Paul had to rebuke him. Mark bailed out on the first missionary journey. And you come to our text, and Moses... Um, murders this Egyptian, is rejected by his countrymen, flees for his life, and then lives for 40 years in the desert. And the story, I think, is here to give us hope that God can use us even after we have failed. Dwight L. Moody, the famous 19th century evangelist, said Moses spent his first 40 years thinking that he was somebody. He spent his next 40 years uh, learning that he was a nobody. And then he spent his third 40 years discovering how God or what God can do with a nobody. Uh, it's from Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 7 when he spoke before the Sanhedrin that we learn that Moses was about 40 when he went out and had this incident where he killed the Egyptian. And uh, then it's also from Stephen that we learn that Moses spent 40 years there in the land of Midian before he had the encounter with the burning bush. Uh, sometimes, you know, we joke about a college student who crams a four-year program into five years, but Moses crammed his education into 40 years he was an old man by the time he left Midian and came to deliver Israel. You wonder, well, what was Moses like during that time, and especially when he goes out to visit his brethren and kills this Egyptian taskmaster? And in Acts 7.22, Stephen tells us this. He says, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in word, in words and deeds. And although it's not inspired scripture, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, tells us that Moses was actually being groomed to be the next king of Egypt because Pharaoh didn't have a son who would be his heir. Uh, Josephus also reports that Moses had led a victorious Egyptian army against the Ethiopian invaders. And so, if that's true, maybe that's what Stephen is referring to when he calls Moses a man of power in words and deeds. Now, you have to ask the question as you come to this text then, well, why would Moses side with these 
Hebrew slaves. In effect, he's risking his place in the Egyptian court. Um, Pharaoh would now label Moses as a traitor because he was trying to keep the, the uh, Israeli slaves under his thumb. And here Moses is siding with them. So why would Moses do that? And you read in Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, verses 24 to 26, and it tells us why Moses did this. The author says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And I have an entire sermon on those verses if you want to read or listen to it later. But we learn from there that that Moses' intentions were certainly right when he went out to help the suffering Hebrew people. He had given up his position He gave up pleasure, which undoubtedly he could have had in the Egyptian court. He gave up the prosperity of living there. I'm sure uh, it would have been the richest place on earth to live. And he took his stand with God's people. But the problem was, I believe, he went about his mission in the wrong way. And the result was this 40-year detour in the desert. He went from being a prince in the palace of Egypt to being a shepherd out in the barren wasteland of Midian. He went from being in the limelight of Pharaoh's government. It would be comparable to being in the cabinet in our country or in uh, you know, one of the prime minister's uh, close associates there in England or that sort of thing. Uh, where there was all kinds of um, wealthy, influential people. That was the circle he ran in. And now he is in isolation and obscurity. And so Moody's comment is well taken. He went from being a somebody, instantly he becomes a nobody. And the text doesn't tell us how he felt. I can't help but believe that he must have battled depression disappointment, uh, confusion. His first attempt at leading the people of God had certainly been a dismal failure. Now, there are a few commentators, John Calvin being noteworthy, who say that Moses was right, actually, to kill this Egyptian. Uh, Calvin believed that he was not impelled here by rash zeal, but rather He knew that God had appointed him to this task of uh, liberating the nation. I side, however, with the majority of commentators who uh, argue that Moses' action here was not in submission to the will of God for him at this time. And uh, even Calvin acknowledges that his 40 years in the desert were a training time, a time of education for Moses to be ready for his later, more difficult assignment. As I uh, pondered this text, it seems to me that a main lesson for us is that our failures 
cannot thwart God's gracious covenant faithfulness toward his people. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. Um, you know, we've, we've all failed. And thankfully, God doesn't set us on the shelf afterward. Three main sections in our text, and I'm just going to kind of follow them as they're written here. But in verses 11 through first part of verse 15, we see that God uses imperfect instruments who fail in their attempts to serve him. Someone has observed that one reason life is so difficult is we get the test first and the lesson later, unlike school. First is the test, and uh, then sometimes when we fail, we learn the lesson. I read about a board of directors at a bank, and the president of the bank was about to retire, and they had their eyes on a young cashier that they thought had the qualifications to lead the bank. And uh, so the young man, at one point, decided to go talk to the president, and he said to him, you know, I'm supposed to follow you after you retire, and uh, I'd be grateful for any advice that you might have. And he said, young man, sit down. I've got two words for you. Right decisions. And the young man thought about it for a moment, and he said, well... That's very helpful, sir, but how does one go about making right decisions? And he said, one word, experience. And the young man thought about it for a minute, and then he said, well, that's also helpful, sir, but how does one go about getting experience? Two words, wrong decisions. (laughs) And, you know, there is only one kind of Christian If you're a Christian, you are a Christian who has failed at some point in your walk with God. Uh, You know, maybe it's not as colossal as Moses or David, I hope not, but we've all struck out right when we needed to hit. You know, we've all done something we look back on and say, oh, how in the world did I do that? And I believe that um, Moses' failure here doesn't reveal all the ways we get into failure, but there are six of them that I saw that I could share with you. First of all, I think we fail when we impulsively act on right commitments with, uh, based on our emotions, not our thinking. I think that Moses made a right commitment, as Hebrews chapter 11 explains. He decided to turn from his position as perhaps the heir apparent to the throne of Egypt, uh, from the pleasures he had there in the court, from the prosperity he enjoyed. That was a great choice, a choice of faith. Now, I suppose there could be critics who would say, well, he should have stayed there, and look what he could have done for the people of God. If he were Pharaoh, he could have freed them, and so on, and perhaps, but... Hebrews 11.24 says he made that choice by faith, and it's obviously holding him up as an example of faith. So I think that was the right choice Moses made. But so often when a person makes a right choice, they're caught up with zeal, but sometimes they lack wisdom. And I think that was the case here with Moses. 
He sees the injustice of this Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and he was rightly angry. I mean, that's wrong. And he thought, somebody's got to do something about this. And so we don't know whether he struck one blow and killed the guy with one swing of the fist or a club or whether he ran him through with a a sword. We don't know how he killed him, but he was acting on impulse. And he was wrongly thinking the time had come for him to liberate the uh, Hebrew slaves. And whenever you act on impulse even when it's based on a right principle or commitment, uh, and here it was the desire for justice, but almost always you're acting wrongly. We have to stop and think and pray. I think Moses' action here reminds me of Peter in the garden. You know, when the troops come up to take Jesus, he whips out his sword, whacks off Malchus's ear, and you can be sure he wasn't aiming for the ear. He was trying to take off the man's head, And it was wrong. Uh, Certainly, if Jesus had not intervened, Peter would have died trying to take on a Roman cohort. Um, In our day, there have been some zealous pro-life advocates, and certainly the cause of pro-life is God-worthy. It is a tragedy how we are killing infants in the womb, but then you get these overzealous pro-life activists who have actually even murdered an abortion doctor. Again, a right commitment, but impulsive, wrong action. We should never take the law in our hands in that way. Um, More positive example, sometimes perhaps a person goes to hear a powerful evangelistic message. The gospel is given The speaker tells how Jesus died on the cross to forgive everyone who will come and trust in him as Savior and Lord. And uh, maybe he's a powerful speaker and he uses stories that bring tears to everyone's eyes. And then as the music starts up, he gives an emotion-filled invitation that if you want to receive Jesus, just get out of your seat and come forward right now. And you can have eternal life. And the, the person sitting there sees others getting up and they're moving and the song is touching and tears are being shed and he gets up and he goes forward and makes a commitment to Christ. Well, that's a good thing to do, of course. But here's the thing. If that commitment is based on emotions rather than really understanding who Jesus is and what he did and what saving faith really involves, then he's going to be like the seed planted on the shallow, rocky soil. Jesus described it as, at first, having great joy. And then when the trials come, it fades because it has no root. And that sometimes proves to be a disastrous after-effect of an emotional decision. same thing can happen Maybe uh, in the decision to become a missionary or to become a pastor or full-time Christian worker, a person maybe sees a video like the one we'll watch tonight maybe with the great needs around the world and they're moved and they, they see these people who are needing the gospel and, and they say, you know, here am I, send me, I'll go. 
And again, that's a wonderful commitment. I hope that many of you eventually have that commitment. But my point is, if it's based on emotions rather than on a genuine call from God and counting the cost, then it's not going to last when you get into situations where you're under attack or you're criticized or you're not appreciated or other trials happen, as they will in serving the Lord. So when you make a, a commitment, make a decision to do something for the Lord, make sure you've stopped long enough to think about it and, and think this through and pray it through and get godly counsel. Don't act on impulse. A second way we fail is when we attempt to do God's work by human strength. And there is just a huge difference between muscling it through in human strength and relying on the Spirit of God to work in and through you. You remember the story of Gideon? First, he has 32,000 troops. Boy, we can take on those Midianites. And God said, yeah, you can, but you got too many. And God whittles them down to 300 because he wanted to show them the battle belongs to the Lord. Gideon was too strong for the Lord. And, uh, you know, here's Moses, and I think he's too strong for God. He's, he's well gifted. He's well trained. You know, he knows the Egyptian ways. He's been educated in their schools. I don't think he's yet relying on God's Spirit because there is no indication in the text of Moses trusting in God when he takes what is a pretty drastic option of killing this Egyptian taskmaster. I, I contrast Moses' action with a story in Nehemiah. I love this story. Uh, Nehemiah is standing before King Artaxerxes, who is the most powerful monarch on earth at that time, and um, the king asks Nehemiah what he would want the king to do for him. And Nehemiah is burdened about the broken down wall in Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah says this in Nehemiah 2, 4, and 5. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. <laughs> now get the picture. He's standing before the king. I'm sure he didn't say, excuse me, king. You know, oh, Lord, please. No. I think he just shot up one of those, Lord, give me wisdom, here I go, you know, kind of prayers, but it acknowledges Nehemiah is leaning on the Lord. And the Lord came through, as you know, in the story of Nehemiah. Uh, here, there is no word about Moses shooting up a prayer. Uh, Moses saying, okay, Lord, I'm trusting you, here we go. Nothing of that. He just goes after this taskmaster. Uh, Charles Swindoll, in his book on Moses, uh, thinks that Scripture strongly implies that Moses had already come to realize God's call on his life by this time, and he thinks that God had impressed on Moses, one day you will lead my people out of bondage, but uh, Swindoll argues that uh, Moses here was acting uh, ahead of God. He says he knew God's will, and then Swindoll says, but the problem was he didn't bother to seek God's way and God's timing. And so he's operating again in human strength, not relying on the Spirit of God. And then Swindoll has an, a, a very valuable 
insight. He says, when you're well-gifted and you're well-trained, you're vulnerable. And Moses was trained in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. He had power as the uh, grandson by adoption of Pharaoh. But when you're well-trained and you're well-gifted, you're vulnerable because you tend to trust in yourself. And you think, I can do this. You know, I can get the job done. You know, after all, I've been to seminary and I've had a course in Greek and Hebrew and uh, I know how to do this thing. And you trust in yourself. I, I am thankful to the Lord that I didn't do very well in preaching class in seminary. I, I got token Bs, but um, I never won any awards, you know, as the up-and-coming preacher-to-be or anything. And when I started as a pastor, I just went in with fear and trembling because I felt so inadequate to do the job. And I told the Lord, I said, I'll try this for three years, Lord, and we'll see how it goes. And by His grace, I'm here 41 years later and still God has sustained me. But I'll tell you, there's not a week goes by that I don't just say, Lord, if you don't give me this message, uh, there's going to be a big, big embarrassing moment on Sunday because uh, often I wrestle with the text for hours before it comes together. And I just feel like every week I'm walking on water. If I don't look at the Lord, I'm going to go under. And so if you have gift and you have training, be careful to rely on the Lord. A third way we fail is when we become more concerned about what others think than about what God thinks. In verse 12, chapter 2, we read, So Moses looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And many have pointed out, Moses looked this way and that, but the one way he didn't look is up. There was someone around. The Lord was around, and he should have paused to say, Lord, what should I do in this situation? He was more concerned about being caught by men than he was about pleasing the Lord. And F.B. Meyer, in his book on Moses, observed, whenever men look this way and that to see what others other men are doing or saying, you may be quite sure that they do not know certainly their master's plan. They're acting from the prompting of their own self-will, though perhaps under the cover of religious zeal. And another old commentator, 19th century, C.H. McIntosh, he comments on Moses as looking this way and that. He says, there's no need of this when a man is acting with and for God and in the full intelligence of his mind. If God's time had really come, and if Moses was conscious of being divinely commissioned to execute judgment on the Egyptian, and if he felt assured of the divine presence with him, he would not have looked this way and that. And I agree. And you know, to walk obediently before the Lord, especially when you're serving the Lord, you have to become more concerned about pleasing God than pleasing people. Um, think about Paul there in Antioch, and Peter is dissembling on the gospel, Galatians 2. Peter was the number one guy 
as far as apostles went. Paul was a Johnny-come-lately, but he confronted Peter in front of the whole church in Antioch and just said, you're, you're compromising the gospel. He was more concerned, Paul was, about what God thought than what people might think. Sometimes I've had people tell me after a sermon where I spoke out on some controversial issue and said, wow, you know, you were really brave to speak on that. And my thought is always, no, I wasn't. I was a coward. I am afraid of God. <laughs> and one day I'm going to stand before him very soon. And I know that life is short and I don't want to hear him say, why didn't you speak my truth to these people? I just have a real concern to hear well done someday and please the Lord. And I hope I'm tactful when I tackle controversial issues, but, you know, they're in the Bible and you have to preach what the Bible says. A fourth way we fail is when we impetuously attempt to do God's work at the wrong time. Now, whether or not, <clears throat> as Swindoll thinks, God had already called Moses to his task, or whether that call came later at the burning bush, as some think, everyone agrees Moses had no <clears throat> direct word from God at this time to take this drastic step of killing this Egyptian uh, taskmaster. Master. He was running ahead of God. And you think through Scripture, and there are others who have failed in a similar way. The story of Abraham and Sarah is familiar. God promises Abraham a son through whom he will bless all the nations. And uh, Abraham's getting up in years. And so is Sarah. And uh, they decide to take matters in their own hands. And she directs him to go into her servant Hagar. And through Hagar, Abraham bore Ishmael. And the world today is still suffering the consequences of that bad decision because Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. And you got the Arabs and Jews at each other's throats in the Middle East today. Um, you have the story of King Saul. King Saul was waiting on Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. And Samuel's running a little late, and people are beginning to scatter, and so Saul takes matters in his own hands, and he tells Samuel, uh, I forced myself and offered the sacrifice, and Samuel says, yeah, and God's going to take the kingdom from you. You shouldn't have done that. You should have waited on the Lord. Uh, positively, on at least two occasions in the story of David, he easily could have taken Saul out. David had been anointed king, promised the throne, and Saul is persecuting David, trying to kill him. And twice, David could have easily just killed Saul. And his men were encouraging him to do it. And David said, no, no, that's not right. And he waited on the Lord. And so, as a general rule... If you haven't taken time to wait on the Lord in prayer and really sensed, you know, now's God's time to take this major action, then just keep waiting. Keep praying. It's not time. So we fail then when we, first of all, act impulsively on emotions. Secondly, when we act in human strength, not God's strength. Thirdly, when we become more concerned about what others think than what God thinks 
Fourthly, uh, when we impetuously run ahead of God and do His will at the wrong time. Fifthly, we fail when we try to cover up our sin and hide it both from God and others. And so Moses kills the Egyptian. He buries his body in the sand. There had been witnesses, and word like that spreads. Do you hear what Moses did? Wow! And pretty soon it's all over the camp. And uh, Moses realizes in verse 14, he says, Surely the matter has become known. And sure enough, sooner or later, it gets to Pharaoh, and then Moses' life is threatened, and he flees to Midian. Now, apparently, during that time in Midian, Moses learned his lesson. Years later, uh, the tribes of Gad and Reuben wanted to settle across the Jordan there to the east, and they promised Moses they would go in with the other tribes and help fight the battles in Canaan before they got comfy over on the other side. And Moses said, okay, but you better keep your promise. And then he gave this warning in Numbers 32:23. He said, if you don't keep your promise, be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. And the point is, we can't hide anything from God. Sometimes we sin and we even try to hide it from ourselves. We make up excuses. Oh, no, no, no. That was okay. And try to salve over our conscience. But, you know, the Word of God has a way of just cutting to the quick. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 explains. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What a verse to remember. All things are open and laid bare to the sight of God, including our thoughts and our intentions. And you know, ever since Adam and Eve tried Operation Cover-Up with the fig leaves, tried to hide from God after their sin, that's been our propensity as sinners. Ooh, I sinned. I better hide that one. Let's bury it in the sand. But God knows. And so Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen tells us that he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And then finally, we fail when we assume that others' hearts are receptive when they're not. Moses, according to Acts 7.25, wrongly assumed that the Israelites would just welcome his leadership. So he goes out the next day. He sees these two Hebrews. Um fighting. He seeks to intervene. But Acts 7.27 tells us, the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And in their minds, just because he's a hotshot in Pharaoh's court doesn't mean he's our leader. And so they pushed him off. But the point is, you can't help lead people to Christ if they 
aren't, aren't open. The Spirit of God has to open their hearts first. And you can't help a Christian in sin if he's not ready to repent. Now, you ought to pray about it and go to him in a humble spirit and seek to restore him. But the point is, God has to intervene. And, uh, you know, if you rush in, as Moses did here, and try to help in the power of the flesh, uh, you're likely to fail. Well, quickly to look at the other two sections, and I can't cover all that's here, but in the next section, verses 15 through 22, we learn that God shapes and prepares imperfect instruments before he uses them. And Moses flees to the land of Midian. Um, Scholars aren't sure whether that's the far eastern part of the Sinai Peninsula or else the western part of Arabia, but it's a long ways from Egypt. And it is a barren wasteland. There's hardly a bush out there for the sheep that Moses eventually uh, shepherds to eat. Um, The contrast, again, must have just been jarring to Moses. He's living in Trump Tower, so to speak, you know, He's got every luxury the world then could afford living in the palace of Pharaoh. He is surrounded with servants who are waiting to do his every beck and call, his every desire. And suddenly, here he is out in the boondocks. I mean, pick the Mojave Desert and the furthest out spot in it, and Moses is there. Uh, He is surrounded at first with all of the educated, influential, important people in Israel. And now the only people he has contact with is this nomadic shepherd and his seven daughters and a few sheep. He's earned his Ph.D., as it were, in the highest university in Egypt. And what's his job? Tending a few sheep that he doesn't even own, that don't belong to him. So... What a jarring contrast. Uh, he helps defend rule, uh, rule's daughters uh, from these aggressive shepherds. And so he eventually settles down there, marries rule's daughter, Zipporah. Uh, during the 40 years, he actually had two sons there, Gershom in verse 22, and his name means a stranger there, uh, representing how Moses felt about being there. And then in Exodus 18, we learn he had another son named Eliezer, which means God is my help. But I think Moses' 40 years in the wilderness were better schooling than what he learned in Egypt because tending sheep in the wilderness, you got a lot of time by yourself. And he could commune with God. And uh, I'm sure the Lord revealed things to Moses during that time. And so between his family duties and his shepherding duties, he learned how to be a servant. And that was important for shepherding God's larger flock, the children of Israel. He learned very firsthand about what the wilderness out there was like. And little did he know for 40 years he would be leading the children of Israel out there in the wilderness. And so, you know, failure often opens our hearts to learn painful lessons. Why did I fail? God, can you use me again? And thankfully, God teaches us about our weaknesses so we can learn to trust in his strength. 
And then the last section, verses 23 to 25, teaches us that God's gracious covenant faithfulness prepares his servants for his people and his people for his servants. So verses 23 through 25, or meanwhile, back in Egypt, is kind of the uh, throwback here. And Pharaoh, who sought to kill Moses, has died. Still, though, the new Pharaoh is suppressing Israel, causing their bondage to be oppressive. And for the first time, it is recorded in verse 23 that Israel cries out to God. Took them hundreds of years in slavery. Scripture never says they did this before. In fact, verse 23 is the first mention of God in Exodus chapter 2. And the only time in chapter 1 was regarding the Hebrew midwives. But they call out to God. And apparently... It took these additional 40 years while Moses is being groomed in the wilderness for God to groom his people back in Egypt to say, you know what? We're ready, God. We need you. We And there's a a minor revival going on when they cry out to God and their cry rises up to God. And then in verses 24 and 25, God is mentioned along with his action four times. I think it repeats the name of God four times for emphasis to say Egypt, I mean Israel is not alone in Egypt. There's another being, the Lord God. It says God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice or literally the last phrase should be God knew uh, Israel as well. Now, of course, those are what we call anthropomorphisms. That means it's a human way of speaking about God. Of course, God always uh, hears, God always remembers, God always sees, God always knows all things. He's omniscient. But it's put in that phraseology to remind God's people that God cares about them in their difficult situation. And God will act on their behalf because he is faithful to his covenant. And I think the key phrase is, God remembered his covenant with Abraham because as we saw, that's the main point of chapter one. When God was multiplying the people in Egypt, that goes right back to Genesis 12 when God promises Abraham and says, You're going to be the father of a great nation. And so God is keeping his covenant promises. And that's the case here. Now, in our case, God entered into a covenant with us. It's called the new covenant in Christ's blood. And the good news about that covenant is God said their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Again, that's a human way of speaking. Of course, God knows about our sins and lawless deeds, but it's saying God puts them aside. He's not going to bring them up for judgment against us. Why? Because Christ shed his blood in our place on the cross. And as you, I hope, know, that doesn't mean we're free to go out and sin all we want, that grace might abound, but rather it is to draw us to God 
after we've sinned and realize because God is gracious and because Christ shed his blood, even our failures cannot thwart God's faithful covenant promises to us as his people. So I hope you're encouraged if you have failed the Lord to come back to him and to follow him and to bury your heart before him and to let him help you recover. Even though Moses here failed at first in his mission of delivering God's people, there's a second Moses. In Exodus 18, I mean in Deuteronomy 18, Moses predicted God is going to raise up for you a prophet greater than I am. And all scholars know that Jesus is that greater prophet than Moses. And he never failed like Moses did. But like Moses, when Jesus came unto his own, his own received him not. John chapter 1. He was rejected by his own people that he came to save. And like Moses, like these two Israelis tell him, you know, who appointed you a prince or judge over us? So Israel in Jesus' day rejected him and said, we don't want this man to reign or rule over us. We have one king, and that is Caesar, they told Pilate, not Jesus. But Jesus always did the things that were pleasing to his father, and the New Testament tells us he came to offer himself a ransom for sinners. And no matter how badly you've sinned against the Lord, the good news this morning is all of that can be wiped clean if you'll come to Christ, if you'll trust in Christ. His shed blood covered the sins of the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul. You haven't sinned worse than Paul did. And the invitation is come and believe in Jesus and you will have new life, eternal life in him as his free gift. And then, even if you've failed him since you've trusted Christ, he will restore you and he will use you again in his purpose because the only kind of people he uses are those who have failed. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that if any are here outside of your mercy, they have never responded to your free offer of eternal life through trusting in Jesus that you would draw them to him right now. That they would open their heart to Christ. Invite him to be their Savior and Lord. That their trust would be in him alone, not in any good deeds that they may have done, but in Christ who died for sinners on the cross. I pray, Lord, for your children who may have failed, maybe recently, who may be discouraged, that you would encourage and lift them up, that they would turn again to you and have hope in you, that you would restore them, renew them, use their failure to teach them, and that they would be instruments in your hand in the future. Thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to celebrate.